Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program, the new coronavirus, COVID-19, Guidelines for People Coping with Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And um, we really want to thank them for helping to spread the word about the program. And today's program is made possible by AbbVie, Alliance, RX, Walgreens Prime, iSci Inc., the Friends of Cancer Care, and the generous time and expertise of our faculty, of our speakers. We have just wonderful speakers on our program today. And um, I just want to acknowledge that we have many, many participants on the call today. Um, and you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have a number of international participants from Australia, Canada, Chile, Germany, India, Portugal, Turkey, Lithuania, Norway, and the United Kingdom. So this is clearly a, a global issue, definitely, and a global participation on the call today. And I want to begin then by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grala, um, who is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grala will be addressing definition and overview of the new coronavirus, what can I do to avoid getting this virus, overview of symptoms. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grala. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you, Carolyn. I am Richard Grawl. I'm a medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. I have the pleasure of introducing the program, which will discuss many aspects of the COVID-19 or coronavirus infection, with a special focus on caring for those with cancer while this illness is in our community. We are fortunate to have a very knowledgeable and helpful panel on the call today, and I look forward to their presentations. We hear so much on the news these days about the COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm afraid that we'll have to be dealing with these issues for many weeks and months to come. Just for clarification, you may hear three terms discussed in general, coronavirus, COVID-19, and SARS-CoV-2. The name of the illness is COVID-19. The co-part of that is for coronavirus, and the V stands for virus, while the D stands for disease, and the 19 is for the year when this was first identified. The actual virus that causes the problem is somewhat confusingly named SARS-CoV-2, which means that this is related to but not identical to the virus causing the SARS disease from 15, 17 years ago. When you get a test to see if you have the COVID-19, it tests for that specific SARS-CoV-2 virus itself. It appears that some people can have the virus without having problems. However, for most people, there are indeed symptoms. When a person gets the illness, there are a variety of possible early symptoms, but most common is a fever, body aches and fatigue, accompanied by a dry cough. Fewer people also have gastrointestinal issues as well, including nausea and diarrhea. But most common is the cough, fever, and fatigue. The impact of these symptoms varies in different people from quite mild to much more. What we are most concerned about and what particularly raises red flags is increasing shortness of breath. If symptoms are mild, then home care with ordinary medicines such as Tylenol, paracetamol, are fine. But with shortness of breath, formal medical care needs to be consulted right away. If you're in doubt, you should always call your doctor for advice. Now, in taking care at home, we've heard that medicines such as ibuprofen, Advil, Motrin, etc., or naproxen, Aleve, and others, may not be a good idea. 
just stay with Tylenol, paracetamol. I will just review some of the important safety measures that have been circulating. The staying at home as much as possible is really good advice to limit the spread. All of us are now aware of the term social distancing, being at least six feet or two meters from others, and in many states and countries about isolating at home. This is all very good advice for anyone and particularly for those with cancer. Studies have shown that the virus can live for many hours on most surfaces and even for days on plastic and stainless steel. This is why cleaning surfaces with potent chemicals such as bleach or strong alcohol or products like Lysol is important. Good hand washing with soap and water is excellent. Frequently and for at least 20 seconds and after any possible contact. The soap need not be so-called antibacterial soap, just regular soap and follow the 20-second thorough hand washing. If soap and water is not available, the alcohol hand sanitizers with about 70% alcohol are a good measure. In cleaning surfaces and in using the alcohol hand sanitizers, these substances need to completely dry. You may have heard discussions about masks. The typical surgical mask generally protects others against the person wearing it. So it has a role, but it's not too helpful for the individual wearing it. It may have some value, but if you're reusing a mask and after handling it, you must wash your hands as they might have been exposed by touching the surface of the mask. It would then be a good idea to sanitize the mask. The so-called N95 mask is somewhat more protective for the individual but they are in very short supply. They too need to be sanitized if reused, and the hand washing remains important with these as well. Remember, in normal times with adequate supplies, none of these would be reused. We must avoid others who have the infection. This is not easy to do in the home, but it is a priority. I would advise thinking about a plan for your own home as to how to handle the situation if a member of the household begins to show symptoms or is known to have the infection. This includes the person with cancer and any others in the home. Now, New York State, where I work in New York, has just issued a guidance on when individuals who have tested positive for COVID-19 after recovery may be released from isolation. These are seen as minimal requirements, which I will discuss, but these guidelines, in my view, need to be exceeded before coming in contact with vulnerable individuals at increased risk, such as those over age 70 and those with cancer. Here are the recommendations. So, if one has tested positive for COVID-19 but has been entirely asymptomatic, they may discontinue isolation if at least seven days have passed since their first positive COVID-19 diagnostic test and the individual has no subsequent illness. Also, if one has tested positive for COVID-19 but has had symptoms, then they may be released from isolation if all three of the criteria below have been achieved. First, at least three days have passed since recovery, which means no fever without the use of fever-reducing medicines. Two, there is marked improvement in respiratory symptoms, decrease in cough, shortness of breath. And three, at least seven days have passed since the symptoms first appeared. While this may be too soon for recovered individuals to be in any prolonged direct contact with vulnerable individuals, it is still useful in that these recovered individuals who may have acquired some degree of immunity might be the right ones to shop for others and to do other helpful tasks while following all the precautions we've already discussed and waiting a bit longer to have real contact with those at increased risk. All the basic recommendations that I just mentioned make good sense for all of us. Dr. Leonard will further discuss recommendations and practical advice for individuals and families with cancer who may have some special considerations and for whom we need to be extra careful. Later in the program, Ms. Cusack will discuss about resources for getting the latest information, which will be helpful for all of us. Our panel will be presenting a lot of information, and we recognize that you may have many questions. We'll be happy to discuss more about these and all related issues when we have the question period later in the program. 
I'll now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner, and we'll look forward to the presentations by Drs. Leonard and Fleischman and Ms. Cusack and Ms. Chatelian. Carolyn? Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Grella. That was superb and just a wonderful way to start this call off and set the context for this for everybody on the call. And our next speaker is Dr. John Leonard. Dr. Dr. Leonard is the Richard T. Silver Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Associate Dean for Clinical Research, Wild Cornell Medical College, Attending Physician, New York Presbyterian Hospital, Executive Vice Chair, Wild Department of Medicine. Dr. Leonard will be discussing a discussion of the risk of the people living with cancer, guidelines to protect yourself and loved ones from the coronavirus, clinical management, treatment of COVD-19 and clinical trials, and follow-up care, key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Leonard. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Messner, and I want to thank Cancer Care and uh, the other speakers for uh, setting up this program. I know this is a very uh, important issue for people. It's a complicated issue or set of issues for people, um, and I want to thank Cancer Care and the sponsors and organizers for, uh, for making this information available. I want to start my comments with um, just, just to highlight two particular things, and that is, as you can all gather, uh, from your own experiences, from watching the news, et cetera, that things are changing very quickly uh, with regard to uh, the coronavirus. And that, and the recommendations that we make uh, are also changing very quickly. So while we are, we're going to give you the best information um, that we can give you uh, today, um, you know, please be aware that things are going to change. They could change as quickly as tomorrow or the next day. Uh, they also uh, will be changing a little bit um, based on where you are. And that, I think, is being less of an issue. Like Dr. Gralla and others on the call, I'm in New York, uh, and there's a lot going on here in New York. Uh, many of you, most of you are from other areas of the country, and I can tell you that perhaps this isn't quite as front and center, but I think we all would agree this is something that um, will be very important, and probably uh, the guidelines and the uh, um, situation will be very similar, unfortunately, um, wherever you are. Uh, and I know some people are from elsewhere in the world and perhaps uh, have been experiencing this uh, ahead of where we are. Uh, so the point being that you really need to um, keep these, these, this information in mind but also pay attention to what your doctor and your healthcare providers are telling you about what's going on in your individual center uh, and uh, how things are changing one way or another in your location as well as what the national uh, health uh, authorities are giving. So the most important information that, uh, that I would emphasize as far as trying to keep yourself healthy is really what uh, Dr. Grala emphasized earlier, the issues around social distancing, around staying home, around minimizing your contact and your exposure, um, and hand washing uh, being being crucial. And you know, if you think of us uh, in in many parts of uh, the country, we have the the lottery picks, the lottery uh, Powerball, where the ping pong balls are bouncing around the a uh, container, and the idea being that if you're one of those ping pong balls, you want to have as big a container as possible and as few other ping pong balls in that in that container so that you're not bouncing into other people or ping pong balls in this analogy that could expose you to the virus. So really, um, this is important uh, for really everyone at this point. I mean, there was a time where we were talking about vulnerable populations uh, being those that are older or having other medical problems. But I can tell you that uh, I think this is good advice for just about everyone. And I think this is going to uh, evolve over time uh, as well as you heard from, from Dr. Grala to be uh, perhaps more strict in, in some cases and in some situations. So I want to, again, reiterate and agree with everything he told you as far as what you can do um, specifically, but I want to spend most of my time focusing on what is the information specific for patients that are dealing with cancer. And I kind of break this down into uh, a couple of different sorts of things. 
depending on where you are in your cancer uh, situation, um, the, how you handle this may be very different. Um, the, so patients dealing with cancer may have just been diagnosed, may be in the middle of treatment, or may be in follow-up. And I think how you might approach um, how you how you deal with this may be a little bit uh, dependent on where you are in your in your situation, specifically with how you deal with your doctor and your healthcare team. So earlier this morning, I saw a newly diagnosed patient with lymphoma, and I saw her in person because this was someone who had significant symptoms, was uh, not doing well, had just been diagnosed, and needs to start treatment. Cannot wait for weeks and months to start treatment. Really needs to start in the next couple of days. And so this was a visit that we did in person, and uh, and our center, like many of the centers that uh, all of you are dealing with, are taking precautions, and this may depend on your center. It may change over time, but we, at our center, there are limitations into how many doors you can go into because there's some um, monitoring of people coming in. Um, many people are given masks as they come in, not all of them, and masks for healthcare workers is extremely important, uh, perhaps in some ways more important than patients because healthcare workers can transmit the disease and need to be around to take care of people um, uh, throughout all of this. Um, when our patients walk in the door, they get seen by uh, typically a nurse who takes their temperature, asks them how they're feeling, tries to see uh, what's going on uh, to minimize the risk of exposure to other other people. Um, and most clinics, most medical practices right now and infusion centers have much lower volumes. I'll come back to that in a second. And so the point I want to make is that there are situations, and perhaps some newly diagnosed patients are, are those, as well as people in the middle of treatment, where you should and could still come in and be seen, um, although it may be a time when uh, your facility, your doctor may be less available. Uh, because they may be taking care of other patients, um, perhaps not cancer patients. At our hospital right now, many of the doctors are being what we call redeployed to help take care of patients dealing with COVID issues because we have a large number of patients uh, in New York City. That may or may not be the case at your center, or that may change over time. We are also um, moving many patients to video visits where there's telemedicine, and I think most, if not all, centers have this. At a minimum, you can have a phone call with your, your doctor, your healthcare provider, but many centers uh, have um, systems that allow you to uh, use your telephone, your uh, iPad, uh, your smartphone to be able to communicate and have a nice consultation um, with your doctor or uh, other uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, etc. So for someone in the uh, who's newly diagnosed, um, it really depends on the situation. For some patients, many patients, they can't wait and they need to come in. Some patients can wait because their situation is not as urgent. Now, in cancer, that, that may not feel like it's not an urgent problem, but sometimes people can, can wait a bit until the situation uh, is uh, less, less hectic for everyone and less concerning for everyone as far as being out and about. But that said, I think most, most patients with cancer are not too excited about um, saying, well, this may quiet down in a month, in two months, we don't really know. Uh, I'll wait and see my doctor about my cancer diagnosis in two months. That's not really appropriate or ideal um, for many situations. And so many centers are now uh, doing uh, video visits, even for new patients. And I've done that, and I think it's very helpful. Uh, and I would say most centers are doing some version of that, whether it's an official program through the center, through the electronic medical record or just simply through a phone call or, or something like FaceTime if people have that, uh, which many people do as part of their smartphone. So I, I would speak with your center and you should be prepared that many centers will be asking you to do that or offering to do that. And while that makes it a little complicated as far as laboratory studies, sometimes you have to defer them or go to a local lab perhaps, um, but that can get, you know, 50, 70%, 80% of the job done, and at least kind of tied you over, depending on the situation, until you can have an in-person visit. 
Now, that being said, many people are in the middle of treatment, are in the middle of getting chemotherapy or immunotherapy, and I have patients every week, despite everything, um, where uh, they still need to be treated and are in the middle of treatment, and we're generally not stopping treatments at this point in time, but I think that is a very careful discussion between a patient uh, and their physicians and, and healthcare providers as to um, do you delay treatment through this until this quiets down? Do you continue with treatment? Do you start treatment? It really depends on the overall situation. Some treatments can't wait and need to be treated despite everything. Some people need to be hospitalized for their treatment or they need to get radiation, and that needs may need to proceed. Other things can be skipped or deferred or say, you know what, this is uh, an adjuvant or an extra treatment. Maybe what we'll do is start this in a couple of months when things quiet down because uh, this isn't essential to start today, whereas other things really uh, need to be uh, started right away, um, and uh, we we move ahead. So these are obviously very uh, individualized decisions um, that uh, come up, and really you have to to take the time to speak with your team and figure out what the what the best thing is. That said, um, you know, be prepared that your healthcare facility is taking precautions. I, we are, there are many patients who are, are afraid to come in or are worried about coming in because they might be exposed to people who are sick, and that may be even more of a concern um, now than it is typically during the course of cancer treatment. And so, again, you have to talk to your team and say, well, what is this, your own individual situation? Can you wait, or do you need to come in? So uh, a couple of other points that I want to make. Well, what happens if you're in the middle of treatment, you're a cancer patient, and you have symptoms, you think, that may relate to the coronavirus? And this is a time of year where lots of people have allergies, lots of people have colds and other viruses, flu season, can get other uh, uh, respiratory infections. And, of course, now on the list of possibilities for everyone is whether or not this could be coronavirus. Um, and so this makes everything very complicated. And it's complicated for anyone with a respiratory infection. It's especially complicated for case patients with, with cancers. And testing for coronavirus is a rapidly changing thing. This has changed from week to week, as many people know, depending on where you are and what your situation is. Um, for the most part, they were certainly at many centers only available for hospitalized patients. Testing might have been only available for also healthcare workers because we need to know rapidly if they are infected to know can they work or do they need to be home in quarantine. Now more and more patients and more and more centers have access to at least some testing. And I think one needs to keep in mind that that's going to change over time. So I really hope and expect that even a week from now there'll be more testing available. And certainly over the coming months there'll be much more testing available. That will make it easier to know um, what a patient's or a person's symptoms are due to. That will also make it easier to know uh, if a healthcare worker is at risk. It will also make it easier for family members to know do they need to quarantine uh, or not because, uh, again, these are not perfect tests, but it is uh, a bit easier or more compelling to do a quarantine if you're not feeling well, if you knew you had this versus you thought you might have this. But nonetheless, even if it's a different virus, not a bad idea to quarantine in those cases as well. And so testing will be helpful um, in some of these issues. But I think what you'll find at least today that in, that in most cases and in my practice today, most people who call me up and say I have respiratory symptoms, my main question is do you need to come into the hospital? Is your breathing sick, uh, poor to the point that, um, that you need to come into the hospital? Or can you just kind of be at home and lay low and monitor your symptoms? And while that is a little bit trickier if you have cancer and are getting cancer treatment, that is something that uh, in many cases uh, is still uh, going on and is still the standard thing to do. So I think you need to be extra careful about uh, as an immunosuppressed cancer patient. And I would say that almost all patients have with cancer, even a history of cancer, may have a somewhat imperfect immune system, but what the state of your immune system is and what your individual risk 
if it's changed by cancer or cancer treatment, you need to talk to your doctor about that because they may have different thresholds to say, yes, you need to come in or yes, you need to take these extra steps versus just stay at home and lay low and, and monitor things. So really, I think communicate with your, your team if you develop symptoms and then they'll sort through for you what is the best uh, path forward. I just want to finish my section with just a couple of quick comments to let you know that there are uh, a number of different treatments. You may have read about some of them for the coronavirus that are being studied. Um, there's been a lot of attention to a drug called chloroquine, which is a drug that's used for certain uh, autoimmune diseases, a version of that called hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil. Uh, there's a drug chloroquine, which has been used for malaria. Sometimes that's been combined with azithromycin, which is another antibiotic. These are being used in some situations and some settings. I have to tell you that my opinion as of today, and this is changing, is that these data are quite limited into, as to how, how effective these uh, potential treatments might be. It's a very controversial area despite some public statements by some of our public health professionals and, and frankly, our president. Um, I think it is uh, debatable as to uh, how much these help. There are studies going on right now. Um, and I think you really need to talk to your doctor. You don't want to be taking any of these treatments more or less on your own. And again, this is rapidly changing. There are also drugs in clinical trials, in particular a drug called, called remdesivir, which is an antiviral drug that was previously studied uh, in certain settings. And so for patients who have known coronavirus, particularly hospitalized patients, there are clinical trials available um, in some situations, and hopefully we will have answers to these questions um, very, very uh, soon. And then finally, I just want to end uh, my section by reminding you that um, uh, you know cancer patients tend to be very appreciative of their healthcare team. I'm going to put in a plug for all of you to look out for and show your appreciation to your healthcare team uh, because uh, doctors, nurses, uh, technicians, uh, those that are there parking the cars and letting people in the door and cleaning up the the uh, treatment area, et cetera. These are all people that are uh, being exposed to the public more than those who can stay at home uh, and are really around patients who could be putting them at risk. And so uh, anytime you can give an extra plug to people who are uh, dealing with these challenges but are showing up to work to look after you, uh, I'd encourage you to do so. So with that, uh, I will stop and look forward to the rest of the discussion and the questions a bit later. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Leonard. That was really, again, superb and just wonderful and just a lot of good information for people to use, practical information for people to keep in mind. Um, and um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. And Dr. Fleischman is a former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, author, researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman will be addressing, discussing where can I go to get the latest information on COVID-19, coping with social distancing, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you to all of our speakers and our participants worldwide. Um, it uh, hurts to say that there's some bad information out there, um, and some of it is just plain old malintent, but a lot of it is generally okay, and some of it is very good. Um, I've seen over the past a few weeks lots of information passed from one person to another that starts with some very well-meaning and even educated, well-informed speculation um, by people in the field, uh, in, in, in the variety of health sciences, by people outside. And when those get passed around, they often seem like they are from uh, proven, respected sources. So we just all need to be aware of where our information is coming from. Um, the uh, high-tech industry and the information industry has tried to get a hold of this. Uh, these are not advertisements, but anybody who does a Google search sees uh, do these five right on the, on the face sheet on the landing page. Um, Instagram, WhatsApp, YouTube has real news. Um, Facebook um, has noted that there's, I 
think, more than five times the um, clicks on information from Wired, which is a rather trusted news source to most of us. Um, so look for these sorts of verified and trusted sources. If you want to go directly to the good sources of information, um, it again seems to me from what I do and what I've read that uh, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the United States, the World Health Organization, and the National Institutes of Health all put out reliable vetted, trusted information that, as the other speaker said, changes constantly, um, but uh, is good information from good sources. Um, uh, we heard a little earlier that there's actually a um, guide for parents uh, from uh, Columbia University, the, the Irving School of Medicine, called Coping with COVID-19 Tips for Parents, and that's also a good trusted source. Um, we are all um, somewhat unprepared and somewhat perplexed by the situation that we're all in uh, to some degree that this varies across the United States. If you're in an urban, suburban, or rural setting, uh, the social distancing is a lot harder in an urban setting than it is in a rural setting, but, the, but important all the same no matter where we are. Um, just to sort of encapsulate what um, I guess people seem to be feeling, and there's a school of thought that says if you put a name on the feeling, it's easier to cope and discuss with it. So many of us are afraid or worried or sad. Sometimes we're bored at home um, without the usual things to do. Many people are angry, and certainly most of us are pretty frustrated at having to change our lives so abruptly without really being able to prepare much in advance. Um, we really have to be careful not to stigmatize people who are um, not, who are COVID-19 positive or believe they're positive because we've been through this and other health crises all throughout the world, and that often um, helps no one and hurts a lot of people. So to the, the best information I've seen to cope with um, the situations that we're in now for social distancing um, may tend to lim need to limit information, not to listen to news all day, and again, stick to reliable sources. People who are at home without preparation have said that creating a daily routine and sticking to it is vital. Uh, that routine should include things that stimulate the mind, whether you're able to work or work on hobbies, but to, to etch out hours in the day where you have things to do and make sure to put in some time for rest and relaxation. Uh, so a daily routine is vital. Many of us, as are the people are on, on this call, find that we are virtually connected by, in ways um, more than we anticipated via phone, via the internet, via a number of different um, meeting apps, um, and we're all getting used to that, but we're finding out that these may be actually much more useful than we ever thought before. Um, everybody really needs to have some period of the day where they're active. Sitting and watching a screen all day is just bad health. We, the general guidelines of being able to stand up every 20 minutes and move around are probably even more important now. But some sort of activity, um, the latest guidelines say that going outside is a good thing depending upon where you live, uh, and making sure that you do keep that six feet from other people still allows walking or being outside safe. Good nutrition in this time is something that we generally laugh about, and people laugh about um, uh, having the, uh, too many bad foods around, but it's no laughing matter. The, the, um, the, the food, the lack of food for certain parts in certain parts of the world is made even more serious with, um, with the current health crisis. So yeah, getting the best food you can um, and making it as healthy as you can based upon who you are, where you live, and what the dietary restrictions are, especially um, during many illnesses, is really, really important. Um, the, um, the approach of, of using mindfulness techniques, which is an umbrella uh, term for things like 
um, exercise, uh, excuse me, um, uh, mindful, mindfulness techniques such as meditation or yoga or progressive relaxation can be extremely helpful. And um, we generally advocate for these during cancer treatment, and they certainly are more and more important um, as these days go by. Um, it's easy to feel this is a catastrophe, but it's not helpful to um, think about that all the time. So deal with the small parts instead of the whole um, the, the whole uh, the, the whole experience um, as um, one big piece. Break it down into individual parts. Be grateful for what little bit sometimes we have. Um, and that sometimes needs to be put in a list every day that people can follow or just a, a, a reminder to ourselves and to our families and loved ones each day of what we can and um, can accomplish in these odd times. Um, sometimes helping out people uh, in a way that still keeps within the social distancing rules of the six feet but helping out people who are, are even worse off can be very helpful to all of us and give us a sense of purpose. Um, it's uh, good to have something to look forward to, and it seems that over the next few weeks it'll be the role of the healthcare providers to help guide us out of this crisis once things become safer. And I'm not sure many of us really have thought about that, but having an exit strategy seems to be one of the most helpful things that we can do to get our lives back. And it will take a little bit of time to get our lives back to the way they were before. And hopefully, um, despite all of the hardship that we're dealing with, we can learn from this and actually keep those lessons in the future. And that may be one of the best things that's, that comes out of um, this unusual and um, unforeseen circumstance that we're all living in. So with that, I will turn the program back to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Fleischman. And that was very informative. And thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Lauren Chatelian. And Ms. Chatelian is an oncology social worker, and she's our Women's Cancer Program Coordinator. And Ms. Chatelian is going to address self-care tips to manage the stresses of COVID-19, Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services, and the role of support groups. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chatelian. Hi, everyone. As Dr. Mesner mentioned, I am an oncology social worker at Cancer Care and also Cancer Care's Women and Children's Program Coordinator. Cancer Care is a nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are aware of the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact that a cancer diagnosis can have on an individual and their loved ones. Cancer Care provides an array of supportive services, including individual counseling and support groups to those diagnosed with cancer, as well as for loved ones or caregivers. Cancer Care short-term cancer-focused services are offered over the telephone nationally. Additional services include online support groups, access to additional educational workshops, reading material, as well as limited financial support. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. A social worker can offer support and guidance as well as help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones, among other challenges specific to a diagnosis. This may include adjusting to and finding new ways of coping throughout treatment that is tailored to an individual. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you may encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. A support group may help to reduce feelings of loneliness and help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. As we have listened to our panel of experts discuss COVID-19 today, we realize how COVID-19 can specifically affect in an individual with cancer. As 
social distancing and remaining isolated continue to be recommended, this can be very challenging in regards to cancer treatment. Check in with your treatment center to see how they are maintaining these precautions. You may notice treatment centers limiting the amount of people, um, which was mentioned earlier, and you know maybe even certain entrances being closed temporarily. There may be an adjustment to one's treatment schedule, or your medical team may suggest oral medication as opposed to receiving treatment at a treatment center. For prescriptions administered at home, it may be helpful to explore the option of pharmacy delivery services. Certain follow-up appointments may be postponed if deemed non-essential during this time. Treatment centers all over the country are putting precautions in place to keep the safety and well-being of their patients their top priority. I can understand how this can feel unsettling and even uncertain, continue to communicate with your medical team to determine what the best plan for you may be moving forward. During this time, you may notice that certain activities or techniques that you may have put in place to help cope through your diagnosis may be paused or altered. This may be a time of finding new hobbies within your home or even exploring virtual or telephonic webinars and classes. While it may feel as though not everything is in your control at this time, focus on something that you may be able to control. Structure and routine can be beneficial. This could consist of waking up at the same time each morning and having a cup of coffee or tea, looking outside, or even watching, participating in a virtual yoga class the same day or time each week. If your usual supports feel distant, see if they're may be an option to connect over the phone or online if possible to continue to engage with others. There are many virtual meeting programs and spaces where people can engage with one another, even phone applications such as FaceTime. If you do not have access to the internet or not able to connect virtually, consider speaking over the phone. Conference calls can be a communal space for several people to join in. If you have a consistent support group or meeting with others, see if it may be an option to continue these conversations over the phone for the time being. Continue to connect with people who have common interests who may be going through a similar experience as you. It is very possible they are also looking for someone to connect with. Being inside all day can be really hard. If you are feeling anxious, consider creating a list of ideas for when you are feeling this way. Think about what has possibly relieved stress for you previously, maybe meditation or breathing techniques, depending on where you live, and if possible, consider stepping outside for some fresh air, maybe going on a brief walk. It may also be helpful to see if there are grocery delivery services available in your area to limit interaction with the general public. There may also be volunteer services locally to help with some everyday needs. Continue to communicate with loved ones to help them understand the importance of putting these precautions in place, how important they are for you. As we know, a cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. Physical, social, and emotional challenges may arise, and it can be beneficial to determine ways to approach these challenges that may surface, especially in regards to COVID-19. If you are interested in learning more about the support services Cancer Care offers, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. You can discuss what led you to Cancer Care with one of our social workers and explore the ways in which we can offer support. And we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be a part of this very informative program today. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Chapelian. That was really outstanding and wonderful um, overview of the services that are available to people and also just some really helpful coping tips for people as well. So thank you. Um, we do now have time for questions. Um, so I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to all of you, bring all of our speakers on board, and to explain to our participants how to queue up and ask questions. Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Emil S. Your line is open. 
Thank you. Good speakers. If you had cancer and treatment 12 years ago and are now considered a survivor and cancer-free but suffer from other ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome, are you still considered at risk? And once you contract COVID-19, do you build an immunity and antibodies to this virus like other viruses from catching it again? Thank you, Emil, for that, those questions, actually. Um, Dr. Gralda, would you like to start with that uh, sure, I'll, I'll start with that. First of all, um, it is not quite clear at this time how much immunity one does get after having COVID-19, but most experts think that there probably is at least uh, one to two years of immunity. Okay, uh, but uh, we'll be learning a lot more about that uh, in the near future. I, I would say that it would, uh, to some degree, depend on what a person's uh, cancer was, that certain cancers uh, uh, after 12 years, uh, such as early stage breast cancer, for instance, I would think there would not be extra risk. Let's remember there are other risk factors, such as age, and, and we know after age 60, and particularly 70, there's uh, uh, additional risk as far as that's concerned. So, uh, you know, as we get on with age a little bit, then the various comorbid conditions must have uh, a little bit different, but still our protective measures are the same, and uh, we want to be uh, quite careful, um, uh, period, and quite careful around our, our family and friends who, who may be undergoing treatment. And does anyone else want to add to that? Or? And we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so, um, so this is for Dr. Leonard. Is treatment for COVID-19 different for someone with cancer versus someone who doesn't have cancer? I'm sorry. Is it is it is the risk if you have cancer versus not having cancer different? Is that is, the question? Is it, I guess is the treatment for COVID-19 different for someone with cancer versus ah, someone the who treatment. doesn't have cancer? Got it. So that is something that we really don't know at this point. Um, the, the main treatment for COVID-19 right now is what we term supportive care. So if you're, you're, there's not a particular uh, demonstrated antibiotic uh, and viruses don't respond to antibiotics anyway. The term antibiotic typically refers to bacteria. There are a number of antivirals, antiviral drugs. So some people may take, for instance, a drug called Valtrex, which helps prevent uh, in, and deal with shingles, as an example. Many patients may know that, that antiviral. But for uh, COVID, we really don't have an antiviral as of right now that is proven to be effective. These are in clinical trials right now. They are being compared to kind of standard treatment, but in general, the standard treatment is what we would term supportive care. So patients who uh, are diagnosed with COVID, typically they're diagnosed because they have some symptoms. They can be uh, fevers and, and uh, muscle pains. And as Dr. Grala said, we typically uh, would at this point prefer Tylenol over an acetaminophen uh, over something like ibuprofen or Advil, although that is not clear. That's generally the recommendation for right now. Um, patients uh, rest, drink lots of fluids, uh, and uh, really, um, at this point, if people are sick enough to be in the hospital, then the main treatment, honestly, is oxygen, supportive oxygen therapy. And um, for a small, uh, a small but obviously important number of people, um, that breathe, those breathing issues can get to the point that one needs to be in an ICU and have uh, uh, oxygen through a, a ventilator. And many people have seen the concerns about that because there are a minority, but uh, a, an important number of people who get to the point that they need that. But for most patients, it's really what we would call supportive care, things you would typically do for other viruses or, or cold symptoms or respiratory symptoms that one would have. So it's not really different for cancer patients at this point um, than non-cancer patients because of the fact that the treatment is a fairly general type of treatment. Maybe similar to what you've already answered, but some of the other questions: Do either acyclovir or Bactrim reduce a cancer patient's susceptibility to COVID-19? 
No, acyclovir, acyclovir, which is an antiviral drug, um, and uh, Bactrim, which is an antibiotic, can uh, I, I, both of those are taken for cancer patients um, who have immune suppression uh, due to their cancer or due to their treatment to prevent certain types of infections. Uh, acyclovir pr uh, works against certain viruses and Bactrim or trimethoprim sulfa works against certain types of bacteria, um, but they do not work against COVID-19. So they are not the, they are not, unfortunately, they are not uh, a preventative for that particular, for this particular uh, uh, problem. And a question again for you, Dr. Leonard. Um, what are the risks related postponing follow-up appointments during the first year post-treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma? So I think, you know, postponing uh, follow-up is a very, very individualized thing. Um, the follow-up appointments that a patient has when they've completed therapy and are doing well are usually for two main reasons. Number one is to see is there any sign that the cancer has come back. And the second is to look for any side effects or toxicities a patient may be having. And so most of those things, not all of them, but most of those things are things that are associated with some symptoms from the patient, um, but sometimes they're detected by physical examinations or laboratory testing. And so um, really this is an individual thing, and I think that for many patients um, who are just in follow-up, a video visit will suffice until things quiet down. Uh, but for other people, something more needs to be done because either their risk is higher or they have more things going on or they have some symptoms or concerns that um, more investigation is needed. So it's an important question uh, to speak about with your doctor and your care team. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Krala. Um, do all hand sanitizers work against the COVID-19? COVID um, I heard that 70% rubbing alcohol more effective than 91%. Does alcohol effectively kill the, the uh, COVID-19? So it is felt that 60 to 90 percent alcohol in a solution, total in, in the solution, of either isopropyl rubbing alcohol or ethanol, uh, a, a, a different alcohol, either one of those 60 to 70 percent, generally around 70 percent of the entire solution being alcohol, is very good at killing uh, viruses and bacteria. Now, the reason this is usually mixed in a gel such as aloe gel is that if you just put straight alcohol of that concentration on your hands, it's really tough on the skin, okay? So that's why it's diluted down to 60-70% uh, with, uh, with the aloe vera gel or something like that. That's to protect the skin. But once you achieve levels of alcohol, either isopropyl or ethanol, around those levels, which is what you find in the commercial hand sanitizers, uh, then it does quite a good job as long as it's allowed to dry of killing viruses, and we're told that's true for COVID-19 as well. Excellent, thank you. Um, so here's an interesting question, um, again, for Dr. Grala. I've been ordering my things online now. Should I wipe down packages and the contents inside? Um, you know, it's a great question, and uh, people think about it. now. Uh, if you think of a package that comes through the mail or through a delivery service, uh, being extra cautious, spraying it with a little Lysol or uh, uh, spraying it with a soap and water solution and uh, letting it dry uh, is not a bad idea. Now, if it's not an airtight package, and almost none of our packages are, and it's been in the mail for two or three days, then I think there's a pretty good chance that uh, a virus might have died. But if one wishes to uh, put uh, um, a, a, an antiviral solution such as the ones we're talking on, it, I think it would be okay. But I see that uh, uh, after a couple of days, it doesn't seem too likely that the interior of the package would be uh, something to be concerned about. Um, okay, and um, another question um, from one of our online participants. Um, 
So this is for, in general, this is a, a personal question, but if you could address it in a general way, Dr. Leonard. My sister is 32 years old, and she has a total gastrectomy and hypic in two more weeks. Is it suggested to have the surgery at this time with, the, with COVID-19 or delay it? And could you just address this in a general way? Because obviously... Sure, sure. So many... Many um, medical centers are delaying uh, what they're what are termed elective, meaning non-emergency surgeries, uh, during this time. Part of that is because the, the doctors and the nurses and the team are focused on uh, COVID uh, patients, patients dealing with COVID, and you know I'll I'll just point out that the hospital I work in, like I'm sure Dr. Grala's hospital and others, we have. Um, in our systems and networks of hospitals, uh, hundreds um, and in fact probably thousands of patients with COVID and are in the building I'm in right now, we have at least a couple of hundred patients in the hospital. So you can imagine that uh, COVID uh, care for co patients dealing with COVID is distracting the team from a number of different things. Now that doesn't mean that if you need care and need treatment that you can't or can't get it, you can, uh, but it means that the hospitals are really focused on those issues uh, in part and some of the doctors and nurses and, and staff are being uh, what we term redeployed or moved into other areas to help provide that care. So the other thing is that there have been shortages in what are called personal protective equipment. Some of you may have seen that on the news. These are the masks and the gowns and the gloves and goggles and face shields that help protect healthcare workers. And many centers, at least for a time, have had to uh, limit elective procedures that are not urgent so that they can conserve that and not run out of that equipment. Um, in order to take care of other patients. So the bottom line is that many hospitals are deferring or delaying um, elective procedures and elective surgeries. Now, obviously, and I think the, the person uh, who asked the question was dealing with a mastectomy, and a, clearly that is an important uh, procedure and a, and a uh, procedure that one wants to get taken care of, I presume, uh, and you know maybe not felt by the individual to be elective, um, but in many cases, the procedures like that are continuing. It depends a bit where you are and what the situation is at your hospital. And in some, the patient may be asked to wait a while because uh, the resources and the team and, and so on are not available to do that. So um, I, I, I can't really judge uh, each individual person and their individual procedure, but I think in general it's important for patients to know that this, this sort of decision might be made. I think that these decisions are being made um, in discussion with and, and the decisions are made in large part by physicians. And so I think people's health is, are not being jeopardized by these sorts of decisions for the most part, but they may be inconvenient or concerning that you might have to delay something that you'd want to get taken care of a bit sooner. Thank you. And another question to you, Dr. Leonard. Um, what are the risks related to postponing follow-up appointments during the first year post-treatment um, in general? What, um, well, again, it, it depends a little bit on what the situation is. Um, in someone who has a cancer that is likely to be cured with their treatment and is not at all likely to come back or has a very low risk, one would have to say that uh, postponing a follow-up probably has not a huge not a huge concern because uh, the cancer is likely to remain quiet over that period. On the other hand, other situations may be more concerning or more risky and require closer follow-up. And in that case, um, it may not be as uh, um, uh, uh, okay or acceptable to delay a follow-up uh, assessment. And of course, if a patient is having some symptoms, either from the disease or from the treatment or having issues that they're not doing well, um, they need to obviously be in contact with their care team and decide what the best course of action is. So it really depends on the situation. I would encourage each patient who's in follow-up, whether it's one year or five years or 
or whatever uh, to really um, check with the team and this is something we're all dealing with uh, today I've had uh, emails from my team we're trying to figure out our schedule for next week all, what are we going to do with the patients who are due to come in some of them are still going to come in some of them will do video visits some will just see in person hopefully in a few months so it really depends on the individual situation, and I would just say that your doctor and your uh, care team really, I'm sure they're taking all this into account and will give you good good guidance as to what, what the risks are and what the uh, best approach is for your situation. Thank you so much, uh, Carolyn, let yes. me just reinforce a little of what uh, Dr. Leonard has, has said. It's um, uh, We're doing a lot of these telephone or televisits, whether it's uh, um, you know, online or whether it's just by telephone. So it's not as though a person doesn't have follow-up. They got plenty of follow-up. It's just the question as to whether they should come in for their follow-up or not come in, all of which are discussions when we do the uh, telephone follow-up. And uh, again, it's risk and benefit. So the hospitals, as Dr. Leonard has said, our hospital, his hospital, have lots and lots of cases. So for many of our patients, staying isolated is a, is a great idea. And if you have any questions, your oncology team is around, and they really want to talk to you. So I agree 100% with what Dr. Leonard has said, but I don't want anybody to get the idea that uh, that they're necessarily really missing out. Very important. Thank you. Thank you very much for adding that. And I have two last questions for you, Dr. Grawa. One question is, what about benzoyl chloride sanitizers. Yeah, um, uh, uh, good point. I'm afraid I don't know what their uh, uh, antiviral properties are. Maybe others know. Of course, they've been around for a long time and are pretty good, but I don't know uh, really what their antiviral properties are. Sorry. Does anyone want to add? Anyone else have a sense of that? Or? No, that's not one I would uh, be familiar with either. The next and the last, um, uh, the uh, the last question, uh, Dr. Grala is. Um, so, what about someone who is testing positive for COVID-19 but does not develop any symptoms? Comment on that. So, has not developed any symptoms, but they've actually had the test and they're positive. Yeah. So. Um, well, it's terrific if they uh, don't develop any symptoms, and uh, as I had mentioned some of the guidance, once a week has passed, if they develop any symptoms, then uh, they clearly uh, have become, uh, a, a week has passed since that test, if no symptoms are there, they've clearly become less infectious, but not entirely uh, uninfectious. So. They, they need to still be cautious around vulnerable people, but they really are in better shape. Now, in the family at home, uh, if that person is there, that person needs to be quarantined even within our small living space. So separate bedroom, separate bathroom as much as possible, not to go in the kitchen and things like that. Now, if there's only one bathroom, the bathroom and the surfaces need to be cleaned after that person uses it, and that's true for the symptomatic or asymptomatic person staying at home. Uh, but fortunately, the asymptomatic person, that's great. Uh, after a week, if everything's okay, then they can start to emerge from that cocoon a little bit, but uh, definitely uh, uh, they still could possibly be infectious and need to spend more time away from the high vulnerable, highly vulnerable people. Thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers. You have been phenomenal. It's an amazing group of speakers. Um, we will be doing um, another program on this in a few weeks, so just be stay tuned. This is, as uh, our speakers have all said, this is an evolving issue, so we definitely want to be sure that you're getting the most up-to-date information. So today you got the most up-to-date information for today but there'll be more up-to-date information coming forth. Um, I also want to thank um, all of you who've been listening to the call, and I know that you have, we have many more questions in queue, so that um, I just want to kind of go over with you how to get answers to your questions, because I think that's, um, you, know, um, you know, that's very important that we all know that um, how to do that. That's um, uh, so actually... Um, 
so I just want to kind of go over that with you. So basically, of course, your healthcare team is the most is very important in terms of your being able to access information. Um, uh, uh, you know, very very important to access your team. That's very very important. And then, of course, um, the the next thing that's very important is for all of you to actually. I know you all like to get credible sites to get information, and we've mentioned the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institute of Health, and we're going to, when you get your evaluation after the program, in a day or two, you'll also be getting information about the, um, you know, about the, um, about all of the resources that we've mentioned during the program. In addition to the resource that is available uh, in terms of the Columbia University um, tips for parents as well, and other tips that we have available for you. Um, so that, um, and I also want to remind all of you that for those of you who have either practical or psychosocial concerns, please do contact Cancer Care um, at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And again, you'll get all this information from us. Most importantly, as we conclude our program today, um, I would not want anyone of you to feel that you're not um, that that you know that you are alone. Although I know that very often, especially with social distancing, one does often feel a bit alone. I want you to all know that you are part of a of a virtual community of people, and that we're all here to help you. And um, we are simply a phone call or a mouse click away. And um, so very important that you actually have that connection um, with us. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a wonderful day.